Well, good evening. Hope everyone is doing well tonight. It's a joy to be with you. It truly is. I want to thank uh, everyone who had a part in putting this together. I'm very, very grateful for that. I'm honored to be here with you. Uh, I am terrified, in a sense, to be here with you as well. And I don't say that in the sense of uh, the fear of public speaking, per se, but I say that because anytime a man gets up to preach God's Word, that is a task that should terrify him because of the weight of the task, the weight of the responsibility, the one whom it is that we are representing. Uh, so, uh, but I'm very honored to be here with you. I truly am. Um, I know we just prayed, but let's, uh, let's go to the Lord we'll, real quickly, and then we'll, we'll begin. Our Father, we do thank you uh, for this time that you have given to us tonight. And we pray that, indeed, uh, as, as was just prayed, that your Holy Spirit would guide us into the truth of your word, sanctify us in the truth of your word. Lord, help us to come to know your word better, and in so doing, come to know you better. These things we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, my name is Justin Peters, and uh, I am, uh, my wife Kathy and I live in Idaho. Uh, I'm not originally from Idaho. If you pick up a, an accent, that's because I'm originally from Mississippi. And uh, I try to mitigate my southern accent when I'm preaching, but it still kind of seeps through from time to time. But um, anyway, God has graciously opened up a ministry of evangelism to me, and I travel across the United States, around the world, preaching and teaching. And my first love is exposition, just expository preaching God's Word verse by verse. That's what I'm committed to. Uh, but what I am most known for, I suppose, is this seminar entitled Clouds Without Water. And Clouds Without Water is a reference in the book of Jude, verse 12. Jude refers to false teachers in a number of different ways. He says they are hidden reefs in your love feast. They feast with you without fear, caring only for themselves. And that is one of the hallmarks of a false teacher. A false teacher does not care about you, does not care about God. He cares only for himself or herself. And then Jude says that they are clouds without water. And the picture there that Jude draws for us is that false teachers have the appearance of having some nourishment, but nothing ever falls from them. They, they leave the ground below them dry and parched. And Clouds Without Water, my seminar specifically, is dealing with what is called the Word of Faith movement. The Word of Faith movement, that's the proper name given to a movement that's more commonly known as the Health and Wealth Gospel, the Name it and Claim It Gospel, the Prosperity Gospel, basically the doctrine that says it's always God's will for a Christian to be wealthy and it's always God's will for a Christian to be physically healed. We should never be sick. Or if you do get sick, then physical healing is guaranteed provided that you have enough faith or provided that you sow a seed into some preacher's ministry. In other words, sow a seed so you can reap a harvest. Give money so you can reap a harvest. If you ever hear a preacher tell you to sow a seed into his ministry so you can reap a harvest, run like the wind. You know you're dealing with a false teacher. Uh, this movement dominates what we see today on Christian cable and satellite television networks such as TBN, uh, the Inspiration Network, Daystar, Lasia Broadcasting, the Word Network, and any number of local Christian outlets. It's not 100% of what you see on Christian television, but it is the vast 
vast majority of it. I would say easily upwards of 95% of what you see on Christian television is this health and wealth, name it and claim it, prosperity gospel. This movement is led by people such as Benny Hinn, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, uh, Joseph Prince, Andrew Womack. Undoubtedly, you know these names. Uh, did I say Joel Osteen? Joel Osteen. And so uh, this tragically is the face of Christianity around the world today. The United States of America created the prosperity gospel and now through television and internet we have exported this theological poison to the rest of the world. And I've been all around the world. I've preached in 26 different countries on every continent except for Antarctica. And I can tell you that as bad as this problem is here, it is far worse in other countries. In Africa and Asian countries are absolutely eaten up with it. South American countries are eaten up with it. So let me give you just a, briefly a little bit of background information how I first became interested and exposed to the prosperity gospel, word of faith movement. Uh, I was born with cerebral palsy and I walk on crutches. And when I was 16 years old, a neighbor of mine came up to me and he said, Justin, God has spoken to me and he's told me that he's going to heal you as long as you have enough faith. And at age 16, this really resonated with me. I wanted to be healed. I wanted to run and play football and do all the things that my friends were doing. And so I really latched onto this. And he told me about a faith healer who was coming to my hometown at the time of Vicksburg, Mississippi, by the name of Nora Lamb, L-A-M. And um, in, the, in the weeks leading up to her arrival, this neighbor of mine spent a lot of time with me. He showed me a lot of scripture. Now, he was taking verses out of their context, but at age 16, I didn't know that that's what he was doing. And uh, so I was completely convinced that I was going to be healed. I thought I had all the faith and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, long story short, went to see Nora Lamb, believing that I was going to be healed. And obviously, I was not healed. I'm still crippled. Uh, but, I, but I saw Nora Lamb. I went to see R.W. Schambach and a couple other more local faith healers. And um, that was my first exposure to the movement. At the time, I didn't even know it was a movement. It wasn't until years later that I began to study this movement at a more academic level. And once I began to study it, then I began to realize that this movement, this theology, it's not Christian at all. The, the Word of Faith movement can actually be traced back directly to the metaphysical cults like Christian science, New Age, New Thought, Gnosticism. And so when you turn on your television, you turn on TBN or, or one of these other networks, 95% of the time what you're looking at is not Christian. It is cultic theology that has been wrapped in some Christian lingo to make it appear to be Christian when it in fact is not. Now, uh, so what I want us to do this morning, my, my seminar is divided into four different sessions, an introductory session and then three primary sessions, uh, composing about eight hours of teaching. Now, we don't have time for that. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to give you uh, some of the most important points of each of the sessions. So I'll do some of the introductory session tonight 
and then we'll move into the first primary session entitled Dangerous Doctrines. So we'll do that tonight and then tomorrow night we'll look at the final two sessions. Uh, so, if, so I'm going to condense a lot of material into a, a relatively short amount of time. So if this seems a little bit disjointed, it's because it will be a little bit disjointed because I'm not able to, to give you everything, but I do want to hit the most important parts. So let us begin. The introductory session is entitled, The Duty of Discernment. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of the Word Faith Movement per se, I want us to look at discernment. What does the Bible have to say about discernment? Well, discernment, biblical discernment, the primary word for discernment in the Hebrew language is the word ben. Ben means insight, understanding. It means to separate things from one another at their points of difference in order to make a distinction. And the primary term for discernment in the Greek in the New Testament is the word diakrisis. Diacrisis means a distinguishing, a clear discrimination, judging. It, uh, the verb form of the same word is a word anachrono. It means to distinguish, to separate out, to test. Dear friends, we are to test all things, right? Paul says, test all things, hold fast to that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Discernment is not an option for the Christian. It's not an option. It is our mandate. It is our duty to be discerning. We are to test everything through the lens of Scripture. We are to even test ourselves, are we not? We are to even examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. So discernment is not an option for the believer. It is our duty. It is our mandate to be discerning. And let me say as we kind of get started here that in all likelihood over tonight and tomorrow night. In all likelihood, uh, I may say some things or teach something that maybe goes against some, some belief that maybe you've commonly held, or I might name a teacher that to one degree or another you have listened to or maybe you like. Uh, I give you my pledge in this. I give you my word. My, my desire, my goal is not to cause offense. I'm not trying to be offensive or cause offense for the sake of causing offense. Uh, but I, this pledge I give you, that everything that I teach you over the next two nights, everything I teach you, I will be teaching from my very best understanding of God's Word. That I promise you. And so uh, the, the Word of God must be our authority, not personal preferences, not traditions, or not the popularity of a particular preacher. So. It is our duty to be discerning. Now, the quintessential passage for discernment in the New Testament, undoubtedly Acts 17, verse 11. Acts 17, verse 11. Luke, the author of Acts, writes, he says, For the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, searching the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, for context, Paul and Silas were out preaching the gospel. They came to the city of Thessalonica, and some people in Thessalonica received what they were teaching, but there was a group of rabble-rousers there that uh, really made things hot there in Thessalonica for Paul and Silas and uh, caused a stir. And so the other believers there, they kind of shepherded Paul and Silas out of Thessalonica for their own safety. And so they left Thessalonica, went about 50 miles down the road, came to the city known as Berea. 
And in Berea, Paul and Silas were received quite well. Their message was, Paul and Silas themselves were, were received much better than those than in Thessalonica. And it's, notice that the Bible says that the Bereans were more noble. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Why were the Bereans more noble than those in Thessalonica? I think we have three indications in this one passage of Scripture. Why were the Bereans more noble? Number one, the Bereans were considered more noble because they studied the law. They were students of God's Word. Dear friends, we must be good students of the Word of God. God has revealed Himself to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, and we have a perfect, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient record of that in His Word. And we cannot know God apart from knowing His Word. So we must be good students of the Word of God. And yet, for the vast majority of people today who call themselves Christians, notice I say who call themselves Christians, uh, they may bring their Bibles with them to church on Sunday morning, maybe. But chances are during the week, they rarely, if ever, pick it up. They don't study the Word of God. And yet, they, these same people will tell you how much they love Jesus. Oh, I just love Jesus. Really? Well, do you study the Word of God? Do you read God's Word? Do you study to show yourself approved? And for so many people today, the terms doctrine and theology have almost become bad words. And you may have heard someone say, Oh, well, I don't need doctrine. I don't need theology. I just love Jesus. Well, no. No, because it is sound doctrine. It is right theology that deepens our knowledge of God. And when our knowledge of God is deepened, then that enables our love for God to be deepened. The Bible never separates knowledge of God and love for God. In fact, look at what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, And this I pray that your love would abound still more and more in what? Knowledge and discernment. You see, the Bible never separates knowledge of God and love for God. The Bible always combines these things. So all these people running around telling, telling you how much they love Jesus, but they couldn't tell you the difference between Romans and Revelation. They don't like doctrine. They don't like theology. I would submit to you that these folks do not love Jesus nearly as much as they profess to love Him. Because if you love someone, you want to get to know that person, right? You want to spend time with that person. Men, when you fell in love with the woman who is now your wife, you studied her, right? You studied her. You wanted to know, well, how does she like her coffee? Where does she like to go eat? You know, what does she enjoy doing? You studied her, and the more you studied her, the more you got to know her, and the more you got to know her, the more in love you fell with her. And it should be, in a sense, the same way in our relationship with Christ. If we truly love Christ, then we should want to get to know Him. And the only way to get to know Him is by knowing Him in His Word. Knowing Him in His Word. The Bible never separates knowledge of God and love for God. Also, the Bereans were considered noble. Now, I'm going to... Well, no, I'm going to do this for a second. 
because this is important. Men, men, I want to address the fellows here for a second. Men, it is our responsibilities to be the spiritual leaders in our home. It's our responsibility to be the spiritual leader in the home. And men, being the spiritual leader in the home does not just mean taking your family to church on Sunday morning. That's not being the spiritual leader in the home. Being the spiritual leader in the home, men, means that it is our responsibilities to teach the Word of God to our wives and to our children. It's our responsibility to do that. God speaking in Deuteronomy chapter 11, God says, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart, on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your children talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Men, are you doing this? Are you teaching the Word of God to your families? Are you talking about the things of the Lord with your wives, with your children on a regular basis when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you rise up? Men, are you doing this? This is our responsibility, guys. It's our responsibility. The very best Sunday school teacher with the very best of intentions cannot do what God has designed you and me to do. Can't do it. Now, I'm not against Sunday school. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not against that. I'm, I'm very thankful for our faithful Sunday school teachers who, who do study to show themselves approved. But men, the primary source of biblical instruction should not be coming from the Sunday school teacher for your kids. It should be coming from you. It should be coming from me. We are the spiritual leaders in our home. Sunday school and all this stuff should be supplemental. The primary source of biblical instruction needs to be coming from us men. It's our responsibility. So many men have exported their spiritual responsibilities to the Sunday school teacher, the youth group leader. My kids are getting everything they need in Sunday school. My teenagers are getting everything they need in the youth group. No, they're not. No, they're not. It needs to be coming from you guys. It needs to be coming from me. Also, the Bereans were considered noble because they received the gospel with ready, engaged minds. One of the things that you'll notice about false teachers is that false teachers encourage you to disengage your minds when it comes to the things of God. They'll say, if you really want to go deep with God, if you want to get to the deep, secret, hidden things of God. You've got to disengage rational thought. Put the old noodle up here in park. Watch this video clip from Guillermo Maldonado. Watch this. And I can give you a list. Uh, faith has been supplanted by reason. Today, we don't do anything unless we understand it. When the, if you go to the scripture, every act of miracle of God, it cannot be explained. That's what supernatural means. Something that cannot be explained is beyond your head, is beyond your reason. If you want to receive your miracle now, you need to disconnect your head. <laughs> and your reason has its place. I'm not saying you're stupid, that we have to be stupid. That's not what I'm saying. But you can't get into the supernatural. You cannot move in the supernatural by, by the reason. Oh. So he says, if you want to move in the supernatural, you've got to disconnect your head. Is that what the Bible tells us to do? No. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. God gave us a mind for a reason. He wants us to use it. We are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. 
Do you want to show yourself approved unto God? Read, study, and obey His Word. It's that simple and that difficult. Read, study, and obey His Word. And by the way, I have this term apostle in quotation marks because, dear friends, there are no more apostles today. Revelation 21 verse 14 describing the new Jerusalem built on 12 foundation stones on which are inscribed the names of the 12 apostles. So all these people running around today calling themselves apostle this and apostle that, uh, no you're not. Thank you very much for applying but the quota has already been filled. So no more apostles today. We'll talk more about that Lord willing tomorrow night. And also the Bereans were considered noble because they tested what they heard by the Scriptures. Even though they received Paul and Silas, they received what they were teaching. Notice that they did not take what Paul and Silas were preaching at face value. It says they searched the Scriptures to see if these things were really so, to see if what Paul and Silas were preaching about Christ really did plumb with the Old Testament Messianic prophecies. I would encourage you not to take what a preacher preaches at face value. Search the scriptures to see if these things are really so. I would encourage you not to take what I teach you tonight or tomorrow night at face value. Search the scriptures to see if these things are really so. Because I'm not the authority. God's word is. God's word is the authority. Okay, I want us to look at some of the hmm, objections that people raise. Before I do that, I want to show you a passage of scripture. Uh, this is a this is a very sobering passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 1, 28 through 32, Paul writes, And even as, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now watch this list of sins. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, undiscerning. Is that not a sobering passage of Scripture? Notice in this same list of sins, sins from which hopefully all of us would recoil from, I mean people who, who murder sexually immoral, who hate God, violent, who invent evil things, undiscerning. Isn't that sobering, is it not? Dear friends, Paul here is not talking about backslidden Christians. Okay, backslidden, that's not even a New Testament concept. He's talking about people who have been given over. These are, these are, these are lost people. And if your life is characterized by one or more of these sins, that's a real good reason to stop and take some spiritual inventory and examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's talking about lost people. And right in the midst of this list of horrific sins, a sin of lacking discernment. Because here's what happens, dear friends. When God saves someone, He also sanctifies that person. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor immoral, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor uh, 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 covetous, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, For such were some of you. You were those things. You're not anymore. You were. 
But now you're, you're, you're different. You're new creatures in Christ. And then he says, you, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Notice those three terms, washed, sanctified, justified. The two bookend terms, washed and justified, dealing with the new birth, with regeneration, conversion. And what's right in the middle? Sanctified. Sanctified. Those whom God saves, He sanctifies. It's a package deal. There are no exceptions. And so all of these people who claim to have been Christians for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and yet they've got no discernment? Something's wrong. Something's wrong. If the Holy Spirit of God is strong enough to save us, He is also strong enough to deliver us out of deception. I got a blistering email one time a few years ago. This guy just ripped me up one side down the other and because he saw that I criticized Joel Osteen. Now, if you know Joel Osteen, he's the pastor of Lakewood Church. I should say, quote-unquote, pastor of, quote-unquote, Lakewood Church because he's not a real pastor and it's not a real church. Joel Osteen's a false teacher. I mean, he is a false teacher. He is not once, not twice, but on several occasions has denied the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the only way to be saved. He's denied that. And by his own admission, Joel Osteen does not preach on sin. And I'm not putting words in his mouth. He'll tell you that. I don't preach on sin. Well, how do you preach the gospel if you don't preach on sin? And all of his sermons are just alike. Do you know, I'll, in about 10 seconds, I'm going to give you the entirety of Joel Osteen's theology. Here it is in 10, sec 10 seconds. God loves you. He wants to bless you. You're a victor, not a victim. You just got to stay in faith. Your miracle's coming right around the corner. That's it. That's all he's got. That's all he's got. If you've heard one of Joel Osteen's sermons, you've heard them all. I would leave his church out of sheer boredom, if nothing else. <laughs> well, this guy emailed me, and he just blistered me. and He was irate. He said, my wife and I have both been Christians for over 50 years, and we love Joel Osteen. And I emailed him back. I said, sir, I'm concerned for you. Claimed to have been a Christian for over half a century, and you like Joel Osteen? Something's wrong. Something's wrong. If the Holy Spirit of God is strong enough to save us, He's strong enough to deliver us out of deception. Now, we're not talking about brand new Christians. You know, someone who has just come to faith in Christ, they've got no background of Bible instruction, Bible knowledge. You know, they're a brand new believer, just come to faith in Christ they're not going to have a great deal of discernment right out of the gate. They should have some, but not a lot. But what happens when God saves that person, He creates in that person a desire for the Word of God. This person reads God's Word, studies God's Word. The Holy Spirit of God illuminates the meaning of God's Word to him or to her. And over time, guess what's going to happen? They're going to get discernment you won't be able to avoid it any more than you would be able to avoid getting wet when you jump into a swimming pool. It's going to happen. So all these people that claim to have been Christians for years and years, some of them for decades, and yet they've got no discernment. Something's wrong. Something is wrong. I want us to look at some of the common objections that people will raise 
And we'll look at these objections and then we will answer them from Scripture. One of them is this, judge not. Judge not lest ye be judged, one of the most often taken out of context, misquoted passages in all of God's Word. Jesus does indeed warn us not to judge. But the kind of judging against which our Savior warns is hypocritical judging. Judging somebody for doing something that maybe we're really doing ourselves, that is what Christ warns against. But the answer to this criticism is that in fact we are to judge safely within biblical parameters. When it comes to matters of doctrine, when it comes to matters of theology, we absolutely are to judge on these things safely within biblical parameters. Another criticism, well, you shouldn't name names. Well, it's one thing to warn somebody about a false teaching, but don't ever call somebody a false teacher by their name publicly. Don't do that. Well, the answer to this is that, in fact, there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name. The Apostle Paul did so himself on several occasions and did so quite publicly. So did Peter, by the way. So did John. Uh, even Jesus himself, Herod that fox. So there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name. Now, it should not be done lightly. Okay, we should not call somebody a false teacher if they differ with us on some relatively minor theological point. You know, maybe some of the nuances of eschatology or who you think wrote the book of Hebrews or the day. What was that? Or the. Okay. They're working out? Is there a gym over? Okay. Or the, or the date of the Exodus or something like that. So, you know, we're not talking about these kinds of issues. But when it comes to the fundamental doctrines of historical Christianity, the virgin birth, the, uh, the, the preexistence of Christ, I should back up, the preexistence of Christ, the virgin birth, Christ's deity, his sinless life, his full atonement on the cross, bodily resurrection, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. On these issues, we draw a deep line in the sand. And uh, we must unite in stalwart defense. And, and dear friends, all of the individuals that we'll be looking at tonight, tomorrow night, and I'll have video clips of them, uh, they have been teaching jaw-dropping heresies, as you'll see in just a minute. Jaw-dropping heresies for years, some of them for decades. They've been called on it, and yet they remain unrepentant. So there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name. Another criticism is this. When one of these false teachers comes under a little bit of scrutiny, the spotlight's turned on them a little bit, this is almost always how they respond. Touch not my anointed. You've heard this before. Touch not my anointed. Don't, don't criticize me. Well, when you hear that, this is how you can respond. Okay, that's fine. Take not Scripture out of context because that is exactly what they are doing. Touch not my anointed. Is it biblical? Well, yes, it's biblical in the sense that it's in the Bible, but what does it mean? Well, let's look at it. Psalm chapter 105. He permitted no man to oppress them, referring to Israel. He reproved kings for their sakes. Touch not my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. So it is in the Bible, but what does this mean? Well, in context, the anointed ones refers to Israel's patriarchs and their descendants, not to today's modern preachers, okay? 
not to today's modern preachers. But here's the real kicker. The word touch actually refers to doing physical harm, not to speaking the truth. You might remember that David had a couple of opportunities to kill Saul. Remember that? On one occasion, Saul was asleep, and David could have killed him, but he didn't. And the other occasion, Saul was, you know, nature called, right? And so Saul was sitting there, and he was reading the paper, doing whatever he was doing. And David came up behind him, and he cut off a piece of his garment, and he held it up, and he said, I would not touch the Lord's anointed. In other words, David was saying, I would not kill him. So we may be calling into question a lot of different false teachers uh, who teach a lot of different false things, but none of us is chasing Benny Hinn down the street with a baseball bat. You know, none of us trying to do anybody any physical harm. Good thing, by the way, that the prosperity preachers live on this side of the cross, because if we are still in Old Testament days, Benny Hinn and Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland and Joyce Meyer and all these others, they would have been stoned a long time ago, long time ago. And by the way, there are three passages in the New Testament which refer to all Christians as anointed. So if you are here tonight and you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you've been born again, guess what? You're anointed. And you have the same anointing as does every other believer. There are no super Christians with the super special anointing that the rest of us common knuckleheads just don't have. <laughs> if you're in Christ, you're anointed. And you have the same access to the same God through the same gospel. You're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit who indwells all believers. This whole dividing of Christians into classes, you know, if you get dreams and visions and you hear voices and you know, God speaks to you through leprechauns in your refrigerator or whatever. You've got, you know, you're really anointed. You've got, that's a special anointing. No, that's, you know what that is? That's Gnosticism. That's Gnosticism. It's not Christianity. Another criticism, well, you're just not very loving. This isn't a loving thing to do. It's not loving to tell someone they're wrong. Well, let me, let me give you this illustration. Let's suppose we are to see a blind man walking towards a thousand-foot cliff. Who among us in here, if we were to see a blind man walking towards a thousand-foot cliff, would just sit back and say, uh, you know, I don't want to offend him. You know, I might hurt his feelings if I tell him he's wrong. He's wrong. That, that might hurt his self-esteem. And... Who am I to judge? You know, maybe he's right. And so we just, we just sit back and we say nothing and we watch this man fall off the cliff and plummet to his death. Would anybody in here do that? Of course not. Every person in here, if we were to see a blind man walking towards a thousand foot cliff, we'd be running up to that man as fast as we could go, shouting at the tops of our lungs, Sir, you are in great danger. You're going the wrong way. Turn around. And yet, don't we do the very same thing, only far worse, with far greater consequences, eternal consequences, when we see people going the wrong way spiritually, and we know the truth, but we don't tell them? If you really want to hate somebody, do that. That's the purest form of hatred there is. Know the truth, 
Don't tell. But if you really want to love someone, love them enough to tell them the truth. The truth is love. If you love someone, love them enough to tell them the truth. It is not up to us how that truth is received, okay? But it is up to us to communicate it. And there is a way to speak the truth, right? Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.15, he says we are to be speaking the truth how? In love. Now, speaking the truth in love does not mean watering down the truth. It means exactly what it says. It means we are to speak the truth, the full truth, but we are to speak it in love. And sometimes members of our own families can be the hardest ones to speak the truth to, right? There is something about that family dynamic that it is very hard to speak the truth to family members. Way easier to speak the truth to a, you know, an acquaintance or someone we don't know real well, but when it comes to family members, it's hard. But you know what? If we love them, we should love them enough to tell them the truth. Love them enough to tell them the truth. Well, that might risk me losing uh, my relationship with this family member. It might. It might. But you know what? You'll have the blessing of having a clear conscience. You do the right thing, and then you trust God for the results. Love them enough to tell them the truth. And finally, well, you know, maybe they're wrong in a few things, but they seem so sincere. You know, Joel Osteen, he just seems so sincere, and he just, he smiles all the time. Well, sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. Friends, the men who flew airplanes into the World Trade Towers were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. And right now, right now they are all too well aware of that. Sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. Okay. All right, dear ones. Well, that is, that is it for the introductory session. So now let us move into the first of the primary sessions entitled Dangerous Doctrines. Let me get this pulled up here. So that was just laying a little bit of groundwork. So now let's look, go first primary session, Dangerous Doctrines. In this session, we will look at some of the standard doctrines that the prosperity preachers teach that deviate from historical Christianity. Now, in order to understand a movement, it really helps to have at least a little bit of a working knowledge of the movement. So where did the Word of Faith movement begin, the prosperity gospel begin? Well, it began with a man named Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. Quimby, we could call the great-grandfather of the Word Faith movement. Quimby was the father of a metaphysical cult known as New Thought. And when I say metaphysical, that's a big word, but all it really means is beyond the physical realm, beyond what we can see and touch here. And when I say cult, I mean any group or sect that may call itself Christian, yet compromises or denies some of the fundamentals of the faith. Mormonism is a cult. Jehovah's Witnesses belong to a cult. Okay, and... Guys, bear with me. Um, Roman Catholicism is a theological cult. It's not a sociological, Jim, you know, drink the Kool-Aid, Jim Jones kind of a cult. I'm not talking about that. But it's a theological cult because it compromises and denies some of the fundamental doctrines of historical Christianity. It rejects salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Quimby was the father of a metaphysical cult known as New Thought. Now, essentially, New Thought held that whatever you 
think about, you will attract to yourself. So if you think positive, happy thoughts, your positive, happy thoughts will go out there into the ether somewhere and will, will engage universal laws of attraction and you will attract positive things to yourself. Conversely, if you think negative thoughts, then your negative thoughts will go out into the ether and the universe will bring negative things to you. Uh, he held that sickness and disease is rooted in bad thinking. Quimby was a student of occultism, hypnosis, parapsychology. His theoretical formulation served as the basis for what is today known as Christian science. Mary Baker Eddy claimed that she was physically healed by Phineas Quimby. She really wasn't. She claimed that she was. But she took his teachings, developed them further, and from that formed what is today known as Christian science. You've probably heard of Christian science. Christian science is very poorly named, by the, way, by the way, because Christian science is neither Christian nor is it scientific. Kind of like grape nuts, you know. <laughs> they're not grape and they're not nuts. Uh, Christian science is not Christian, it's not scientific. But there's a lot of Christian science overtones in the modern Word of Faith movement, Prosperity Gospel, one of which is the denial of physical symptoms when it comes to sickness and disease. If you have a friend or a family member who is in this movement, who's been listening to some of these people, to one degree or another, you might notice that if your family member gets sick, they deny that they're sick. Maybe they've got a cold. You know, their eyes are watering, their nose is running, they're sneezing, they're congested, the whole nine yards, it's obvious they have a cold. But if you ask them, well, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh, I'm not sick. I'm not going to confess that. Because if they confess that, then that brings it into reality. Well, that's Christian science. And Christian science has its tentacles in the modern prosperity gospel. One example of this. Watch this video clip from Andrew Womack. Watch this. If you are reaping sickness, it's because you've thought sickness. It may not be that you've thought, all right, I want to be sick but you've thought things that allow sickness to dominate you, such things as, well, I'm only human. I'm just a man. It's flu season. I gotta get sick because it's flu season. You may not have sat there and have thought, I want the flu, but you've thought things that made you inferior to flu and that made you only human. You were denying and not focused on who you are in Christ, that no plague will come nigh your dwelling. And you have thought things that made you susceptible to Satan stealing your health. So if you're sick, it's because you've been thinking sick thoughts. Well, this is new thought. This is not Christian. This is cultic theology wrapped in some Christian lingo. Essek W. Kenyon is the grandfather of the Word Faith Movement. Kenyon had very clear ties to the metaphysical cults, especially New Age, New Thought. He attended college at the Emerson School of Oratory in Boston where the metaphysical cults flourished. He was heavily influenced by them. Kenyon wasn't wrong on everything, but he did have a number of uh, departures from orthodox doctrine. For example, Kenyon believed that God created not ex nihilo, but rather God created by speaking faith-filled words. And we as believers can do the same thing. Kenyon held that when God spoke, His words were containers of a tangible substance called faith, hence word of faith. 
And everything that exists is made out of faith. If you were to break down matter to its basic components, you wouldn't find molecules and atoms, protons and neutrons, you'd find faith. The chair that you're sitting in right now is made out of faith. The car that you're driving is made out of faith. The clothes on your back, they're made out of faith. Everything's made out of faith. And we as believers, we can speak and our words are containers of a tangible substance called faith and we can create our own physical reality by the words that we speak. Kenyon held that humans took on the nature of Satan in the fall. When this happened, they forfeited to Satan their supposed deity and made Satan the legal God of planet Earth. Dear friends, Satan is not the legal God of planet Earth. God is the legal God of planet Earth. The Earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. Satan is referred to as the God of this age and by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, Paul was making a theological point, not a legal point. God is the legal God of planet Earth. Kenyon held that Jesus died not only a physical death, but also a spiritual death. That when Jesus died on the cross, the work of the atonement was not finished. It had just begun. That when Jesus died on the cross, then he went to hell, suffered, was tortured by the demons, died a spiritual death, ceased to be God, and had to be reborn, had to get saved. And that is where the real atonement of our sins took place, according to Kenyon, not on the cross, but in hell. And finally, Kenyon held that health and wealth are obtainable by the believer's positive confession. So if you need money, you speak it into existence. If you need healing, you speak it into existence. Okay. Um, skip some stuff here. I want us to now look at the doctrines of the word faith movement. We'll begin by looking at the doctrine known as positive confession, the belief that we speak things into existence. Watch these clips. Look at me, say, 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 all, all of you, say, there's power in me, power in me. to speak life, speak life and death. You call what you have, you say what you want, and I'm here to tell you, I know that I know that I know that as these programs are airing, I, I'm speaking something into existence. Amen. I'm speaking something into existence. If that sounds eerily like God's act of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that's because it is. Dear friends, only God can speak things into existence. That is not an ability that you and I have. But the faith preachers blur that line between God the Creator and us His created. They demote God to make Him look more human than what He is, and then in turn they deify man, and they make us look a lot more like God than what we really are. Now in case you're thinking, oh, well you're just taking them out of context, they don't actually teach that we can speak things into existence just like God did. I mean, they don't really teach that, do they? Yeah, they do. This is a tweet from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar says, As spiritual beings who possess the nature of God, we have the ability to speak things into existence just like God did. So yes, they do teach this. Yes, they absolutely do. Listen to this conversation between... Kenneth Copeland and Paul and Jan Crouch. Listen to this. 
does God use faith? Surely. Now, now see, here's a sore spot. There are those who him. say. Not with, not, not with you. No, no, no. <laughs> not with God. I'm not, in fact, I'm not sore at God at all, and I don't think he's sore at me. I don't know. I haven't done anything to him. No, but the, the critics say God is God. He doesn't have to have faith. He doesn't exercise faith. He doesn't use faith. He's God. He's the object of faith. Oh, wait a minute. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. I don't know either. Did you catch that? Kenneth Copeland said, now wait a minute, what does that mean, God's the object of our faith? I don't know what that means. And then you hear Jan Crouch say, well, I don't either. Friends, that's not meat. That's milk. The fact that God is the object of our faith, I mean, that's first grade Sunday school stuff. It doesn't get more basic than that. And here you, you hear these people say, well, well I, don't, I don't know what that means. And the reason they don't know what that means is because you see in their system, God is not the object of faith. Faith is the object of faith. In the prosperity gospel, faith is not placed in God. Faith is a force that you direct at God to make Him do whatever you want Him to do. And it's really ironic that these people who call themselves faith preachers, they don't even understand what faith is. They have a fundamental misunderstanding of what faith actually is. This is from Jesse Duplantis. Jesse Duplantis says, The Bible says that every man has been given the measure of faith. Have faith in your faith, not faith in God. Have faith in your faith and step over into the faith zone, whatever that is. <laughs> How powerful are our words? Well, so powerful that if you don't like the weather, you can just change it. Watch this from Gloria Copeland. You know, you're the you're supposed to control the weather. I mean, Ken's the primary weatherman at our house, but when he's not there, I do it. He can see what's happening out there. It shows just like they have on at the weather, like on the news. I mean, he's got the computers, got the current weather on it and all that for flying. So uh, sometimes I'll hear something. I'll hear the thunder start. Maybe he'll still be asleep, and I say, Ken, you need to do something about this. And knowing that, but you are the one that has authority over the weather. One day, Ken and Pat Boone, well, we were in Hawaii at their house, and we were, they were sitting outside, and there was a weather spout out over the ocean. And that's like a tornado, except it hits the water. And so they were sitting there, and they just watched it, rebuked it. It never did anything. One day, I was in the airplane in the back, and my little brother was in the back with me, and Ken was up front flying, and we were not in the weather because we don't fly bad weather, but we, we could see the weather over here. And I looked out the window, and that tornado came down just like this, down toward the ground, and Ken said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You get back up there. So this is how I learned how to talk to tornadoes. I saw this. And that tornado went, woo, 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 woo. Even while I was watching him, my little brother was not a devout Christian at that time, and that was really good for him to see. <laughs> so you're the weatherman. You get out there, or the weather woman, whichever it is, and you talk to that thing, and you tell it you're not coming here. I command you to dissipate, and you get back up there in Jesus' name. Glory to God. That, that, I won't charge you extra. <laughs> now... 
you know, that really doesn't even deserve a comment. It's so <laughs> patently absurd. But the first thing I'll, I'll say real quickly, did you notice how she says, we can control the weather, but we don't fly in bad weather? <laughs> Why not? I mean, if you can control the weather, fly through whatever you want to fly through. You know, just talk to it before you get there and keep on going. So, I mean, honestly, just a little common sense clears a lot of this stuff up. But it, it, aside from the theology, just some common sense. But it's not just Gloria Copeland. Uh, Creflo Dollar says he can do it. Jesse Duplantis says he can control the weather. He can. Pat Robertson, just a few days ago. Did you see that? Just a few days ago, Pat Robertson was rebuking Hurricane Florence. Bound it. Bound the hurricane and, and shoved it back out there in the Atlantic Ocean. Oops. That didn't turn out so well. This from John Hagee. Oh, John Hagee. John Hagee's not word of faith, is he? Oh, yes, he is. I believe that when a person says, I wish I were dead, he or she invites the spirit of death to invade his or her life. When an unhappy wife says, my marriage is a failure, she has pronounced the doom of this relationship. When a pregnant mother says, I don't want this baby, she is pronouncing the termination of her pregnancy or a curse upon the life of a child yet to be born. Speech is that powerful. Is it really? So according to John Hagee, if a pregnant mother, for whatever reason, simply verbalizes the words, I don't want this baby, she can actually kill her baby in utero. Where is the sovereignty of God in all this? Where is the sovereignty of God? They have no concept of God's sovereignty. None. None whatsoever. The God of the prosperity gospel, little g God, is a very weak, very indecisive, very effeminate God. And it is not the God of the Bible. You remember the account in Luke's gospel of the angel giving the announcement uh, that, uh, to Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah that they were going to have a baby. Remember that? Of course, it would be John the Baptist. But they were older, right? They were advanced in years, past childbearing age. And when Zechariah heard about this, he kind of questioned it, right? He scoffed at it a little bit. What did God do in response to Zacharias question. What did he do? Closed his mouth, right? Made him a mute. For a very interesting take on why God took away his speech, this from Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen says this, Why did God take away his speech? It's because God knew that Zacharias' negative words would cancel out his plan. <laughs> See, God knows the power of our words. He knows that we prophesy our future and he knew, he knew Zechariah's own negative words would stop his plan. Wow. So according to Joel Osteen, God was up in heaven looking down. He saw Zechariah making negative confessions, and God just went into a panic. You know, oh my goodness, I, I, what am I going to do? I wasn't counting on this. And so in a last-ditch effort to save his plan of redemption, God had to reach down and close Zachariah's mouth and make him a mute. Whew, boy, <laughs> that was a close one. Unbelievable. No concept of God's sovereignty. None at all. None at all. Our next doctrine is the little God's doctrine. All of the prosperity preachers teach that if you are a Christian, you are in fact a God. 
a little God. Watch this from Creflo Dollar. Now, in verse 26 and verse 27, God now submits himself to this principle of everything producing after its own kind. And in verse 26 and 27, let's read it out loud. Ready? Read. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now that's interesting because if everything produces after its own kind, we now see God producing man. And if God now produces man and everything produces after its own kind, if horses get together, they produce what? And if dogs get together, they produce what? If cats get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, let us make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. Now, I got to hit this thing real hard in the very beginning because I ain't got time to go through all this. But I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in. The real me is just like God. The real me is just like God. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Dear friends, when the Bible says that God created man in his image, that means that as human beings, you and I are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're the pinnacle of his creation. And I don't care what PETA says, we are of far more value than anteaters and aardvarks. We're the pinnacle of his creation. We are created in the image of God. We have the potential and the capacity through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to know God. None of the other created order has that privilege and ability, but we do, but we do. But dear friends, we are created in the image of God. We have the potential and the capacity to know Him, but that does not mean that we are gods. The Bible is very clear. There is only one God, and we ain't Him. There is only one God, and He is a jealous God who will not share His glory with another. And if I remember my Bible correctly, wasn't the desire to be just like God kind of what led to the whole fall thing in the first place? How ironic. The very first temptation, which led to the very first sin, the desire to be just like God, what led to this whole fallen state in the first place, the faith preachers teach as truth. They want you to believe it. They want you to accept it. The very thing that led to the whole fallen state in the first place. How ironic. How ironic. Who else in the Bible wanted to be just like God? 
Satan did. He wanted the worship that God was getting for himself, remember? And he rose up in rebellion against God and got him and a third of the angels along with him kicked out of heaven. And so this little God's doctrine is quite literally, quite literally a doctrine of demons. And yet it is at the heart of the prosperity gospel. The little God's doctrine is at the heart of this movement. Why is that? I'll, I'll show you. I want us to look at what the faith preachers teach about the doctrine of the fall. This will kind of help us put the pieces of the puzzle together, why they believe what they believe. Word faith, New Apostolic Reformation teachings on the fall. Uh, New Apostolic Reformation, by the way, it, like Bill Johnson up there in Reading, not too far from here. Um, number one, they teach that Adam was an exact duplicate of God. He was not a little like God. He was not a lot like God. That he literally was God. That God literally reproduced himself in Adam. Adam was a carbon copy of Yahweh. Well, we all know what happened, right? Adam sinned, which of course begs the question. If Adam was Yahweh and he sinned, was it Yahweh who sinned? You see, you carry these doctrines out to their logical conclusion and you see how dark and heretical they really are. But when Adam sinned, he lost his deity, lost his godhood. Then that was transferred to Satan. When this happened, the real Yahweh God lost his legal right to planet Earth and was kicked out. And so even as we sit here tonight, according to classic word faith theology, the real Yahweh God is up there somewhere, but he's got no access to planet Earth. He's been kicked out, gone. See you later. Bye. Do they really teach this? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. This is an email from Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland says this, But when he turned, referring to Adam, when Adam turned and gave that dominion to Satan, look where it left God. It left God on the outside looking in. He can't do anything down there. He had no legal right to do anything about it. Could he manipulate and operate? No, because he'd be doing the very same thing that Satan did in the first place. And if God had injected himself illegally into the earth, what Satan intended for him to do was to fall for it, pull off an illegal act, and turn the light off in God and subordinate God to himself. Now you can see the complicated predicament that God's in. You can understand why someone would say, wonder why God lets all those wars go on. He doesn't. There's not anything he can do about it. Not anything he can do about all those wars going on. Poor old God. Well, that's kind of Psalm 46, verse 9. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. Awkward. So, according to the prosperity preachers, if God is no longer the legal God of planet earth, who else is? Who else? Satan becomes the legal God of planet Earth. We talked about that. No, he's not. But according to word faith theology, guess what happens when a person gets saved? Guess what he gets back? Ah, he gets his godhood back. He regains his deity, just like Adam supposedly was before he fell. And this, dear friends, is why the faith preachers hold so tenaciously to health and wealth, because we're gods. And a god cannot be poor and a God certainly cannot be sick. You see, so many people think that this stuff is just about 
healing and Rolex watches and private jets and all that stuff. No, that's just, the, that's just some of the bad, low-hanging fruit off of a rotten theological tree. But the allure of health and wealth is what makes this movement so appealing to people and yet so dangerous at the same time. Because the prosperity gospel says this, come to Jesus because He'll make you rich and He'll heal your body. They appeal to two of the most basic and universal of all human desires. Most people want to be wealthy. And very few people enjoy being sick. There's a few out there. They just like the attention that comes, you know, hypochondriacs, I guess what they call them. But most people, if they had their druthers, they'd rather not be sick, right? And so the prosperity gospel says, well, if you'll just come to Jesus, you can have it. Huh. So you're telling me if I come to Christ, if I become a Christian, if I, quote, unquote, ask Jesus into my heart, then God will make me rich and I'll never have to be sick? <laughs> Sign me up, man. You know, I, I like that, Jesus. You got two of them? I'll, I'll take them both. But is that the real gospel? Or is the real gospel something a little bit more like this? Come to Jesus because you're a sinner. And because of your sin, the righteous wrath of God abides on you. And the only way to have that wrath removed is to repent of sins, turn from sins, and place your trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then you will have heaven. You will have heaven. But on this earth, you're not promised money. We're not promised healing. What are we promised? We're promised tribulation. We're promised persecution. What does the Bible say? Some of those who live godly in Christ Jesus may be persecuted. Is that what it says? All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And dear ones, there are no exception clauses to that unless you live in the United States of America. If you're living godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. Now, I'm not talking about North Korea kind of persecution. I'm not talking, we don't live in a country like Iran or North Korea. We don't live in a country, at least not yet, that, that, per, that actively persecutes in that kind of way Christians. But you know what? If you're living godly in Christ Jesus, you ought to be experiencing some soft persecution somewhere. Friends, family members, co-workers, somewhere. You should be experiencing some soft persecution. And if you never have, I don't know what to tell you. You're not living godly in Christ Jesus. But you see, that, that message isn't as popular as saying come to Jesus because you can be rich. You don't have to be sick anymore. If you come to Jesus for those reasons, if you've come to Jesus for some reason for, to have a, you know, your life enhanced, life enhancement, you've come for the wrong reasons. You've trusted a false Jesus and a false gospel. Life isn't going to get easier after one becomes a Christian. It's going to get a lot harder. A lot harder. This is a tweet from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar says, 
Jesus bled and died for us so that we can be forgiven of our sins and have the wrath of God removed. No, no, that's not what he says. Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity. Oh, that's why Jesus died on the cross, so we could all drive Bentleys. It's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. Softening of sin. If you watch these preachers for very long, you might, you might begin to notice that they don't talk much about sin. A lot of them don't talk about sin at all, Joel Osteen. But even if they do, they soften it. They soften sin. They don't really define it properly. Now, I want you to watch this video clip. This is from Joseph Prince. And this is tricky, okay? This is kind of tricky. You don't have to be a good Berean Search the scriptures, see if these things are really so. Watch this from Joseph Prince. To do this, but you're getting the same kind of response, aren't you? People yes. need and, and want. You know, the word repentance, uh, like Joel said, is from the Greek word metanoia, which literally means change your mind. And uh, every time, like Joel or, or me, preaching the word, without using the word repentance sometimes, but people's minds are being changed all the time. From thinking this way negatively to thinking positively. So Joseph Prince says that the Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. And you know what? He's right. That is the Greek word for repentance. And then he says the word metanoia means to change your mind. Guess what? Right again. That is what that word means. But then did you notice how he fleshed it out? He said, we may not use the word, referring to himself and Joel Osteen, we may not use the word repentance. I mean, heaven forbid we actually use biblical terminology in our preaching. Wouldn't want to do that. So we may not use the word repentance, but we're still teaching people to repent all the time. Trust us, we're still teaching people to repent when they go from thinking negatively to thinking positively. That's not repentance. According to his definition of repent, we could all repent simply by joining the Optimist Club, just having a sunnier outlook on life. Everything's just sunshine and lollipops and unicorns all the time. That's not repentance. Repentance is a change in mind, but genuine repentance comes, number one, when God grants repentance. And when God grants repentance, yes, our minds are changed, but everything about us is changed changed. Our affections are changed. We begin to love what God loves. We hate what God hates. And when God grants repentance, there will be fruit in keeping with repentance. There will be evidence of that repentance having been wrought in our lives. Paul says, so King Agrippa, I kept declaring that all men should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now, this does not mean we perform deeds in order to repent. That's getting the cart before the horse. But when God grants repentance, there will be deeds in keeping with repentance. There will be fruit. John the Baptist, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So repentance is the name, the uh, word itself does mean a, a change in mind, but it's far more than just changing your mind. One of a, a good rule of thumb to keep in mind, dear ones, it can be very helpful to study a biblical word, 
to, to kind of break it down and look it up and look at it this way and that way and look at its etymology and all that and, and know what that word means, that can be very helpful. But the dictionary definition of a word is not always the full meaning of that word. Because it is the Holy Spirit of God who places words in their context in the Scripture. And it is the context that determines the meaning of the word. It is the Holy Spirit of God who determines the meaning of a word, not just the dictionary or the lexicon. Okay, How is it used in Scripture? So metanoia in and of itself, yeah, change in mind. But how is it used? It's far more than just a change in mind. It bears fruit. It bears fruit. Okay. All right. Watch this video clip from Benny Hinn and Miles Monroe. Pastor, we get the mind of God about His will. We pray it. When we pray it, we give Him legal right to perform it. Yes. Let me define prayer for you in this show. Prayer is man giving God permission or license to interfere in earth's affairs. In other words, prayer is earthly license for heavenly interference. That's incredible. That is incredible. God could do nothing on earth, nothing has God ever done on earth without a human giving him access. So he's always looking for that somebody. Always looking for a human to give him power, permission. In other words, God has the power, but you get the permission. God got the authority and the power, but you got the license. So even though God could do anything, he can only do what you permit him to do. God can only do what we permit him to do. Dear friends, I would submit to you tonight that God can do whatever he jolly well wants to do. And is not losing a great deal of anthropomorphic sleep over whether or not he has our permission to do it. God can do whatever he wants to do. Now don't take my word for it. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But do you know I actually showed this verse to a, a Word of Faith person one time and he said, that just means God can do whatever He wants to do in heaven, not on earth. If He wants to do something on earth, then He has to have our permission. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all of the deeps. Oops. Friends, God can do whatever He wants to do does not need our permission to do it. Watch this from Jesse Duplantis. Friends have frank and open conversations with each other. I've done that with the Lord. I've had the Lord say, uh, Jesse, I've had God come tell me, say, this is what I'm going to do. I've had the Lord literally say, what do you think about this? God has asked me for my opinion. <laughs> God asks Jesse Duplantis for his opinion. Do tell. <laughs> but I don't want to take him out of context, so let's let him finish his thought. I said, well, Lord, since you asked, uh, maybe I'm doing it. He said, no, we can talk frankly. What do you think? I said, well, I don't think you ought to do that. He said, why you don't think I ought to do that? I said, well, you know, I, I know you know people more than I do, but, you know, Lord, if you just let me, let me do a little bit more work on this individual, I think we can get them to you. He says, okay, go ahead. 
Do what you have to do. And I tell you what, the Bible says he who wins souls is wise. And he who thinks he can counsel God is a fool. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? Well, I guess it was Jesse Duplantis. <laughs> unbelievable. Truly unbelievable. This from Jesse Duplantis. I'm, I'm going to say something going to knock your lights off. God has the power to take life, but he can't. He got the power to do it, but he won't. He's bound. He can't. He says death and life is in the power of whose tongue? Yours. You ready for this? You want something to knock your lights off? You choose when you live. You choose when you die. God has the power to take life, but he can't. I think that might come as a bit of a surprise to a number of people in the Bible. Ananias and Sapphira. Charismatics talk about getting slain in the Spirit. They were slain by the Spirit. Um, King Herod was eaten by worms. Uzzah, remember Uzzah? Walking along, the oxen were pulling the cart on which sat the, the ark. And the oxen stumbled and the cart tilted. And you can see this in your mind's eye, right? You and I would have done the exact same thing. Uzzah, without even thinking, just instinctively, just reached up to steady the ark and God struck him dead. You think God isn't holy? Who else would differ with Mr. Duplantis? Well, now let's think about, oh yeah, everybody alive on the planet, except for eight people in that little flood thing, I bet they would beg to differ with Jesse Duplantis. Their arrogance is just unbelievable. Just unbelievable. I want to show you a little, whoops, this went to the wrong slide. I want to show you a little bit of, about what the faith preachers teach about the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we can establish that they preach a different Jesus, we can establish that they do indeed preach a different gospel. Many of the faith preachers hold to what is essentially an Arianistic view of Christ. Arianism was a heresy in the early church that essentially held that Jesus did not come as God. He just came as a man. We had a very close walk with God, but was not actually God in human flesh. Uh, this was a heresy that the early church did away with in the Council of Nicaea in the year A.D. 325. So, I mean, the church did away with this heresy like 1,700 years ago. Prosperity preachers, though, just don't want to let it go. This from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar says, and somebody said, well, Jesus came as God. Well, how many of you know the Bible says God never sleeps nor slumbers? And yet in the book of Mark, we see Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. Jesus came as a man. And at age 30, God is now getting ready to demonstrate to us and give us an example of what a man with the anointing can do. Y'all, please listen to me. Please listen to me. This ain't no heresy. I'm not some false prophet. Dear friends, as a general rule of thumb, if a preacher actually has to tell you that he's not a false prophet, chances are, chances are. But he says, because Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat and God never sleeps nor slumbers and therefore Jesus could not have been God. That's ridiculous. 
Dear friends, when Jesus came to this earth, He came as the God-man, pre-existent from eternity past. But when He came to this earth, He took on a human nature. It did not change His divine nature. He took on a human nature. And in the person of Christ, we have one person, two natures. He was the God-man. And as the God-man, Jesus experienced many of the same things that you and I experienced. He got hungry. He got thirsty. And guess what? He got sleepy. It does not mean that He was not God. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But the reason they teach these things is because they teach that Jesus was a man with the anointing. We are men and women with the anointing. And so therefore, we are just like Christ. We are just like Christ. All the privileges, all the abilities that Christ had, we have. In fact, Ken, uh, Essek Kenyon, the grandfather of this movement, he said, quote, quote, the believer is just as much an incarnation as was Jesus of Nazareth. End quote. They really teach this? Yes, they do. This from Kenneth Copeland. Now, Kenneth Copeland, I uh, went to the wrong slide again. Kenneth Copeland claims that Jesus physically appeared to him and gave him this prophecy. Quote, unquote, Jesus said to Kenneth Copeland, he said, Don't be disturbed when people accuse you of thinking you're a God. They crucified me for claiming that I was God, but I didn't claim I was God. I just claimed I walked with Him. He was in me. Hallelujah. That's what you're doing. Blasphemy. Jesus most certainly did claim to be God. Before Abraham was, I am. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus most certainly did claim to be God. And any Jesus that He's preaching who did not claim to be God is not the Jesus of the Bible. If they preach a different Jesus, they preach a different gospel. Watch this from Larry Huck and Paula White. Goes to the wrong one. This from Larry Huck and Paula White. We really begin to understand that, that, that when Jesus Christ paid the price, the first thing that happened after he said it is finished is the veil was rent from top to bottom, signifying that no man could do that. But the price that was paid was there's now no separation. So that we have direct access in the Holy of Holies. We understand, according to Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest. Absolutely. And he's the first of many brethren, which means I now come into a priestly anointing. So I now can Say that again because they don't get it. I now come into a priestly anointing. Jesus is not the only begotten on. Son of God. He is not. I'm a son of he's God. He's the first fruit. You're the, he's the first fruit. He's the first born of many. Okay. Jesus is not the only begotten on. Son of God. Can you believe that? Flat out denying that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Have they read John 3.16? Friends, these are not minor issues here. We're not here talking about the date of the Exodus or who you think wrote the book of Hebrews. These issues go to the heart of the gospel. Now, I'm going to say something that may sound a little bit odd, but bear with me. It is not enough 
to just believe in Jesus. Not enough to believe in Jesus. Mormons believe in Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus. Hey, Muslims believe in Jesus. Hindus believe in Jesus. But they don't believe in the right Jesus. They have a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. You've got to believe in the right Jesus. And the Jesus of the Word of Faith movement is just as much a different Jesus as is the Jesus of Islam. You may as well be a Muslim as be Word of Faith. Watch this from Seth Dahl. Now that's probably not a name with which you're familiar. Seth Dahl is on staff at Bethel Church up the road here in, in Reading, pastored by Bill Johnson. This church is known for its signs and wonders and gold dust and angel feathers and all this kind of nonsense. Watch this from Seth Dahl. I had a, I had a pastor say some things that hurt me really bad. Hurt me so bad, messed me up emotionally, mentally, really messed me up. Nothing physical, nothing like that. A, a, a pastor I, I really respected said some words and hurt me so bad. And one time I was laying on the floor, actually it was in this room, I'm laying on the floor and in, an, in a vision, in an encounter with God, in a vision, Jesus picks me up and holds me so close that I can't see anything. And he holds me so close and Jesus starts to weep. And he says, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I said, what are you talking about? Please forgive you. He said, when that pastor hurt you, it's as if I hurt you because he's a member of my body. Please forgive me. Sometimes blasphemy is just not a strong enough word. The very notion that the sinless Son of God would come to a sinful, fallen, vile, wretched enemy of God and ask for forgiveness? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. There's only a couple of possibilities here. He's either making this stuff up out of whole cloth, some out of the, the, his vain imagination, or if some thing did appear to him, he had some kind of vision, it was not the Jesus of the Bible. No, sir. No, sir. He's either making it up or that was a demon. Neither one of those is a happy possibility. That is blasphemy. That is blasphemy. Kenneth Copeland, a tweet from a couple months ago. Kenneth Copeland says this, One born-again man, referring to Jesus, one born-again man defeated all of hell by himself. He's talking about Christ. That Christ is a born-again man. 
that Jesus had to be born again, that Jesus got saved. That is blasphemy. That is a different Jesus. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. As I said, you may as well be Mormon or Muslim. Be a Hare Krishna. Be a Hindu. Watch this from Rod Parsley. Because when Naaman obeyed that instruction, the miracle of God was released just like I'm believing with you right now. Somebody's laying hold on a miracle. I can, I can perceive it. I, I can perceive that virtue's going forth out of me. I feel your faith pulling on me right now. Did you catch that? He said, I, I perceive virtues going forth from me. You perceive what? Now, when we hear that, I perceive virtue has gone forth from me, we automatically think of what story in the New Testament? The woman with the issue of blood, right, who touched the hem of his garment. Who touched me? For I perceive virtue, power flow, flow out of me. He feels virtue flowing out of him. And he says, I feel your faith tugging on me. You feel what? You, Rod Parsley, feel my faith tugging on you. So I guess now Rod Parsley should be the object of our faith. Unbelievable. These people are not Christians. Oh, Justin, are you saying that they're not even saved? That's exactly what I'm saying. That is exactly what I'm saying. As I said earlier tonight, dear friends, the Holy Spirit of God is not a weakling. Those whom He saves, He sanctifies. You cannot be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and teach these kinds of blasphemies. It's not possible. If they were truly saved, the very first time one of these blasphemies crossed their lips, the Holy Spirit of God would drop them to their knees. And yet they continue to teach these things with reckless abandon. No prick of conscience whatsoever. They have been called on their heresies, and yet they continue to do it. They continue to teach it. This is not a Christian. These are not Christians. One of the great ironies in this movement is that these people would look at someone like me or look at someone like, you know, I guess most all of us in here, and they would, they would say, oh, you don't believe in the Holy Spirit. You don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. To the contrary. To the contrary. I am so confident in the power, in the working, the person of the Holy Spirit of God that I do not believe someone can be indwelt by Him, indwelt by the third person of the triune Godhead, regenerated, sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, and teach these kinds of blasphemies. It's just not possible. It is they who have a very small view of the Holy Spirit of God. I'll uh, finish with, with this clip. Watch this from Todd White. Have you heard of Todd White? Todd White, you can look at him on YouTube. Todd White is this guy, he's, um, he's got dreadlocks. And he kind of looks like the predator. You know. He, rather fitting because it's, he's a theological predator. But uh, Todd White goes around healing people randomly on the streets. And uh, 
it, it's a complete smoke and mirrors. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a trick. But he goes around healing people randomly on the streets. One of the most common ailments that he heals people of. He'll have somebody sit in a chair, and he'll have them straighten their legs out. He'll put one foot in each hand, and he'll he'll show you. Oh, like one one leg's about that much shorter than the other leg. And apparently, there's just an epidemic of people walking around with one leg slightly shorter than the other one. And he commands their legs to grow. And right there on camera, you can say, wow, the leg seems to grow, and now they're the same length. That's a trick. And I, I, can, I know how he does it. I could give you a demonstration if we had time. But anyway, he's a charlatan. He's a charlatan. If he can command legs to grow, surely he could command cancer cells to die. So the first place he ought to be going is St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. That's where he ought to be going, in healing those sick kids dying of cancer. But you won't catch... Todd Bentley or other, any of these other faith healers anywhere near a hospital, unless they're a patient, which <laughs> happens a lot, by the way. But watch this from Todd Bentley. I mean, Todd White, excuse me. It's not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So it's the Trinity. It's, it's all three parts. Jesus... You know, he walked and lived as, as a man. And he didn't, he didn't live as God on the earth. The reality of this thing is that Jesus Christ, he pays a price for us to be made right with God. Jesus goes to hell, I believe. He went to Hades. He went down and descended into the depths of the earth for three days, and he pays for the sin of mankind. But on the third day, on the third day, he got the keys to both hell, death, and the grave, got those keys, came up out of there, was resurrected that day, and all of a sudden, everything was about to shift. In less than one minute, Todd White managed to utter three soul-destroying, gospel-denying heresies. Number one, the Godhead is not comprised of parts. He says all three parts. God is, the God is not 33% Father, 33% Son, 33% and a third percent Holy Spirit. No. God is one God, one being in three distinct persons. So it's not parts. Number two, he says that Jesus did not live as God on earth. Yes, he did. Jesus was one person with two natures. The God-man. Yes, he did live as God on earth. And also, dear friends, Jesus did not atone for sins in hell. He did not go to hell and atone for sins, died a spiritual death, and had to be reborn, had to get saved. That is not, that is heresy. That's heresy. Jesus atoned for our sins on the cross. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. His work was completed on the cross.